to Campbell and Cohen's Kooky Quarantine. I'm Seamus Campbell. I'm Ben Cohen. And we are joined today by the quote-unquote Warden of the North, Robert Drum. How's it going, guys? That's literally how it goes. Uh, so for uh, fans of the show who don't know Rob, he is the Northern Vice President of uh, New York City Young Democrats, a very close friend of mine. Uh, I think he's what the two B region director for the rural caucus, or one. I, I don't know if I am or not. I know I've submitted my candidacy for that yeah, position. So, so let's just hope we don't like knock it. But we only have like twelve listeners, so yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So everyone, we are recording this on the twentieth anniversary of September eleventh, two thousand one, uh, and you know we're all of an age where we certainly all have memories of 9-11. You know, we're all relatively young, but like we definitely all like had access to the internet and um, news and stuff. So like this episode is not going to be as silly and um, as usual, but, you know, we're going to just try to give our reflections on 9-11, you know, where we are now, you know, memories of things, you know, and go from there. Um, you know, like Rob of like he's from North, uh, upstate New York. You know, I'm from the New York City area. Ben, of course, from Kansas. So, of course, we're giving different perspectives on things. You know, and of course, 9/11 hit everyone differently, but also in the same collective action that it was a tragedy. Um, I mean, it was the sort of thing that was unavoidable and pretty stunning for everyone obviously i think y'all being a little bit closer to it were affected a little bit more directly and we just sort of couldn't avoid it in our own way in this part of the country and elsewhere so like rob you're the guest so like what memories do you have of it like you know feel free to say whatever you like you know you want Yeah, so I, I remember, I mean, I think this this has been kind of called our generation's JFK moment. So I think everybody genuinely remembers where they were. I was in school at St. Francis over in Herkimer. Um, I, went, I went to Catholic school until eighth grade. And all of a sudden, one of the teachers came in. It was, it was Mrs. Franco. And she said, Elaine, which to hear somebody referred to by a first name is extremely rare. Like for years, everybody thinks, you know, Sister Rosalie's first name is really Sister. So... Uh, Elaine, turn on the TV. So we wheel the car in, we plug it in. And just as that, the second plane came into view and hit the tower. Um, and, and at that point, you know, everybody's like, what's going on? We had a, a classmate of mine, Caitlin. Her brother was working down on Wall Street um, and she could not get a hold of him after that. We're all in the parish hall. All the classes got moved to there. We had a big TV. We were watching everything going on in the the uh, teachers and the sisters are trying to explain and everything and we go home. My mother's a wreck. Um, and, and, and I remember for the days after that, I did nothing for about three weeks, but come home and watch the news from the time I got home to the time I went to bed. I remember all of the, you know, all of the little nitty gritty things. Um, every time they would pause at uh, ground zero when they would pull remains out um, when President Bush at the time spoke, uh, Mayor Giuliani spoke, a, a bunch of the people from the uh, congressional delegation here in New York, Chuck Schumer spoke, all the stuff that happened on the steps of the Capitol, all of those things that happened in, in, the, in the weeks and days after, I remember pretty much. Um, 
I do remember on, on a personal note, while we're upstate and, and Seamus, and not to leave you out of this, Ben, but just as a New York centric kind of thing, you know, obviously everybody, it's like those those ripple effects as they go out and, and everybody who was in the greater New York City area, especially New York City, obviously felt the impact a little bit differently. Um, and one of the things even up here is we have a lot of people that are in fire, EMS and, and first response. And there was the all call that was put out by uh, FDNY and NYPD, not that they needed help, but, you know, we're here. And so a lot of first responder agencies up here sent people down to the city to help out with recovery efforts. And I, I'm the vice president of a uh, ambulance agency up here called Movac. And I was just, when we were moving stuff around last year uh, or two years ago before COVID, we, I found a picture on the wall and it's 9-11 on a piece of glass. And there's a piece of uh, re remembering, uh, and I don't know if it was what agency gave it, but I believe it's a piece of uh, ground zero in there saying, thank you for your efforts in helping us out. So the agency that I'm now the vice president of sent people down there um, for the recovery effort. And, and, you know, and, and we can go on for hours about things that we remember. I think Seamus, your point is, is it hit everybody differently, but it did affect everybody to some degree. Um, years later, I went on a cruise down to the Caribbean, and it was probably it was probably four years after 9/11, and there were people down there that still remembered it there, and they were not United States citizens in just another part of the world. So I, I think it was a global impact, and obviously, we here in New York felt it differently. You down in New York City probably have a different story than I did. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I agree with that point as well. Ben, you were like a little bit older than uh, Rob and I when that all happened. Like, so, and you also, you know, you weren't in the New York area. So like, what do you remember of it? Oh, I mean, so I was a freshman in high school when it happened. Um, and I actually pretty distinctly remember like finding out about it. I was... I think I heard people talking about it either coming out of gym class or in the hallway. Uh, and then as I was going to uh, a math class, the principal just came on the intercom to kind of generally say something has happened. There are rumors that we're canceling school. That's not true. And then, I mean, the entire rest of the day, some classes very, they, they made it tense to carry on and just kind of go about their business almost all had either a TV on if they had one in the classroom or they had a, a radio on, just something keeping track of news. Because I mean, word of what actually was going on spread very quickly. I mean, there were, you know, this was, uh, you know, in the middle of a high school in Kansas before social media was a thing, before news spread that effectively on the internet. So a lot of bad information was still going around. You know, we got a lot of stuff like, oh, I heard that there was a nuclear bomb that went off or, oh, they actually hit Camp David's. Uh, you know, I think somebody heard that Flight 93 had been maybe directed at that before it was taken down or that the Pentagon got completely wiped out, so on and so forth. Um, any, I mean, obviously, by the end of the day, enough people knew what had actually happened and what of those things were just people sort of exaggerating or hearing bad information secondhand. But I mean, that's that, that's how it was. Like the entire day was just everyone distracted. Everyone obviously freaked out. There were people there that had people that they knew or cared about in the New York area that they were worried about. 
a few people that were just too freaked out went home early. Um, we got the, the the newspaper in Topeka did an extra edition that afternoon, which I don't know. There are I cannot remember a time besides that where something like that actually came out. You know, they just had to go to the presses again that day, and you know, for obvious reasons, and distribute it far and wide. But no, they had that. It was all there. I think every student at my high school ended up with a copy of it or one to read in a classroom. Um, and I mean, it's just for a bunch of teenagers, even in a, another part of the country, it's a lot to process. Um, I mean, everyone just doesn't really have a good sense of what's going on, why it would happen. And of course, there are a lot of people who are wanting to know for the next several days, is this something that's going to continue? Is it going to hit here in some way and you know 20 years later it's especially absurd to think well after an international terrorist organization launches this elaborate strike on the eastern seaboard you know primarily focusing in the new york area and does all this damage why would they then look to the midwest and like northeast kansas but that's where everyone's mind was is this going to continue is this going to escalate are we in the same level of danger to go along with just sort of the empathy of, oh my God, it's you know obvious that there's been an incredible amount of death and destruction. And I get that anyone who listens who is you know maybe a little bit younger than us, and I know at 34, I think I'm the oldest person on this recording. Um, but the footage of the plane strikes, especially at the World Trade Center, because I mean there were cameras all over both strikes. We're going across the news on and on and on for several weeks after that, to the point where one of the pieces of advice that mental health professionals were giving to help people cope with just sort of the fear of it afterwards was turn off the news or change the channel when it comes on. And I don't know if any of the major news stations were instructed by anyone or you know even strongly suggested to stop constantly re-airing it, but I know there were some calls for it. So like, so of course I'm in. I was living on Long Island at the time. I was twelve, and I, of course, I'm also part of the New York metropolitan media uh, area. Literally, and I mean not like exaggeration. Literally, you could not change if you flip through the channels on nine eleven. And for about maybe the next day, every channel was a news station. They switched, M- like everything you could think of: Nickelodeon, MTV, Cartoon Network, all of it, to some sort of news. Uh, I guess it was the corporate overlords on that, and mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, I can argue both sides on that uh, on that case. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a reason that they would do it, obviously. Like, yeah. it's a little silly to pretend it didn't happen. But I think at some point, I mean, everyone knows that that part of it occurred. The constant re-airing is going to keep people on. It's good for the ratings. But the solemnity of it is sort of watered down when you're just constantly airing it to make sure yeah. that people don't go from CNN to MSNBC or whatever. Um you know, for me, like, of course, like, I was still at the age of where I'd watch some cartoons and stuff. Mm-hmm. 
And for me, it was very much, especially like, you know, I was really into like, I think it was like Digimon at the time for me. And I was upset that like on Fox, I couldn't watch Fox Kids, which was hearing Digimon. Like, um, and from, because like for me, at least I needed some sort of, of course, at the time I did not know the words, but I needed some sort of refuge, some sort of respite um, where I just could just escape for 30 minutes, an hour. Um, and then it was like the bad information that you're talking about. Um, I remember, I guess this is about 2003, 2004, I was watching uh, 60 Minutes one evening and they were doing some sort of thing about uh, Google uh, and like how fast they've grown as a company and various products. And they said about how uh, Google News was actually created in the wake of 9-11 because a lot of people were searching for news of like what was going on and they just couldn't find anything and there was no reliable news sources. Um, you know, anyone that just knew some standard HTML or just knew how to hit publish as a web page in Word could create their own website and say whatever they want. And thank goodness this is not, this was before social media. Because um, God only knows what the trolls would have said on that day. Yeah, I can completely see that. And that, I don't know, that doesn't surprise me. I guess I hadn't really thought of the fact that a service like that didn't exist at the time because, I mean, that's stuff like that. You know, quicker news searches are so ubiquitous now. Um, but, I mean, so much of that, yeah. like, it, it, was re- it was really cliched for a few, for several years, really, after 9-11 to talk about how that day and those attacks changed everything to the point where, I mean, people could start making fun of it because every politician and everyone that wanted to run a stupid idea through Congress would say that it was a response and that it needed to happen in the post-9-11 world. But there are some things where it was genuinely true. And I think that it's going to be very hard for a lot of people, especially Gen Zers, is to understand sort of how there was this collective feeling within the nation that there had to be some sort of like response. Like uh, you don't, the belief was you don't get to kill three thousand of our people in one day and let them tell a tale. Like it was very much let's get get these guys and. And, and one lot. thing I'll, I'll, I'll jump in here on too is, is that just from a historical perspective is the last time that this really into a, a full comparable moment happened where like Andy Card goes up to President Bush in, in, Sar- in Sarasota and says, Mr. President, a, a second plane is there basically being Mr. President, we're under attack was FDR on, on, on Pearl Harbor. And yeah. I, I mean, look at, look at the response that America did after that, the next day he's standing in Congress asking for a declaration of war and, you know, the emperor of Japan or one of the the, uh, generals there, and I forget who it was historically, because there's a bunch of movies and you get the idea, but basically said that they didn't, they they didn't beat us. They just woke a sleeping giant. And, and we responded quickly to the war effort incredibly fast and I think that was the, the thing. And, and I, I think we're relitigating it. And we just saw, you know, the pull out of Afghanistan, which is a whole separate topic. But, you know, we the, the idea was at that point, and, and Seamus, you are right, is 
you did this to us, something is going to happen. And it kind of, you know, harkens back to West Wing, which I know we're all fans of to a degree, but with proportional response. I mean, what is the proportional response? You commit a terrorist attack on our country. You, you kill 3,000 plus of our people, plus the damage that it caused afterwards, the sickness that it caused afterwards, which, you know, we've seen the, the years and decades later. I, it's kind of hard to argue. And, and, and for me personally, and maybe I take a little bit of a different stance being more moderate in, in some regard is I'm not going to have Gen Zers that are ultra more progressive today relitigate the past that I live when some of them weren't alive and tell me how I should have felt in that moment. And I think that's a, 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 another conversation in and of itself, but that's one of the things that I think kind of bugs me is, well, you should have felt like this on this day. That's not for you to say. Yeah, no, I, I get that. Cause I mean, I think uh, we all had some, it's impossible to describe what the mood was like then. There has been, I mean, for everything that's happened since 9-11, and obviously there have been some massive traumatic events. I mean, Lord knows we're going through the pandemic right now. We've had, you know, massive storms, especially Katrina. Um, nothing. Storming of the Capitol. Yeah. I mean, that, that was that was basically, I, I, I'll go so far as to say the storming of the Capitol was the, uh, the Gen Z version of 9-11. In a way, yeah. I mean, the, the, there was a sense of foreboding that I had during that day that wasn't exactly what it felt like watching the news, especially after I got home from school uh, on September 11th, 2001. But it made me think of that. I mean, I the scale was yeah, the scale was different, and you know, only a handful of people died. But then, you know, I was also making jokes on January 6th about, and, you know, it's another thing, we're measuring it literally just by the date. I was, you know, sitting in my living room on, like, Facebook Messenger with people making jokes about, hey, everyone, I think this is America, the series finale, which there were some people that had that same idea. I mean, for different reasons. <laughs> I, uh, I remember, so when the storming the Capitol was happening, uh, my office has a Slack channel and, you know, we we're all sending messages to each other. And I said to everyone, like, I just have this like feeling that this is for me, how I felt uh, on 9-11 as a 12 year old kid. And basically I remember at one point during on the evening and I'll tell my story I guess some point during this recording um i was at home and basically i just like thought like this is just not happening this is an alternate universe like i am just this is a dream like you have it was one of the signs of trauma where first stage is denial which i had already it, in the grief and all that i had gone through and i knew that this was happening but finally at one point i was like this can't be real and i remember Eventually, just out of just sheer stress, I had I ended up taking a nap. Same exact thing happened to me on the, during the storming the Capitol. Like I just couldn't keep my eyes open. And I guess it's some some sort of stress response that my body has that it's like you just need a reset for a few minutes. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that was I think that was exhausting for everyone. I know I felt yeah. a lot faster the next couple of days after that. Um, no, it was like maybe like 10 minutes I was actually asleep, 
but like it was like basically um this is going to be a very bad analogy or analogy i'm going to give but or simile i should say because i'm going to say like um but it was it's like how um sometimes not a seizure um but there's like times like basically when your body basically has to do a complete reset um it's not a re Caesar, it's something else uh, like similar to that. Can't think of the word, but I digress. I'm sure if we all heard it, we would like immediately. Yeah, we would remember it. And listeners, if we don't think of it by the time we're done recording, and you can identify it, feel free to send us a message and make fun of us for you know yeah. having a massive brain yeah. fart while recording uh, our episode. Yeah, and of course, this is the first episode uh, that we're recording after I've recovered from COVID, um, and like you know symptoms are still lingering of the brain fog and all that um and so please everyone get vaccinated like don't listen i'm telling you if i did not have i definitely got the delta variant uh from all the research i've done and i am still feeling the effects like sometimes i'm like a little bit weaker than normal i have brain fog and like you basically are just not hitting your all the cylinders get vaccinated because it will if it was not for the vaccine i would not have recovered so quickly and i would probably have been in the hospital like and if you really want to go with toe-to-toe with me on the science message me like i will school you i and this is that is a challenge and and ben and rob know that i troll anti-vaxxers you troll i mean you troll most people seamus Frankly, I think if you had the resources you had now uh, on 9-11, you would have just cyberbullied Al-Qaeda into submission. You're not wrong. I know. You're not wrong. I know. I, I paid money to watch that pay-per-view. What do you mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, he would fight it on multiple fronts. He would uh, find ways to screw with their bank accounts, probably start, I don't know, Sending long, tedious recipes to Osama bin Laden's email address, no matter how many times he tries to opt out of them. You you know that actually, if Anonymous was still around, like Al Qaeda would have had was was around in nine eleven. They would have been like no resources. Of course, and so. they probably would. Have, yeah, yeah, that's totally true. You know, jumping, and I know we're both West Wings fans, so jumping back in is that, and, and I know Seamus and I kind of talked about this while we were in Cincinnati at YDA, is just the, one of the big things that was going on at the time was West Wing, and they they came in for their season, and correct me if I'm wrong, the name of the episode is Isaac and Ishmael. Yep. And, and that was done as the the preseason, what was it, three or four, or two? Three. Three. So it was like pre-season three because it wasn't really an episode one, but it is episode one. And just I mean, that was like one of the mega shows of the time when they were really picking up speed and, and they were able to put that together. And still, when I think of, of all the things that happened post 9-11, like you take that day and then the, the recovery efforts that happened and then stop and then, you know, and, and in me being a sports guy, I think of Mike, Mike Piazza hitting, hitting that home run. That was like the, the beginning of normalcy moving forward, right? And I think of Isaac and Ishmael doing a, that was kind of a nice synopsis of everything that happened and put the mood of what America was. They had that really constructive conversation with those high school kids in the galley of the West Wing. 
Um, and, and you know, that's that's something mess. that whatever. It's like gallery mess where they get food, mm-hmm. but not fresca. Um, so I mean that that's something that always is stuck in my mind too because I remember watching that episode as it aired with my grandparents, you know, here, and uh, that's something that's ingrained in my mind as well. Like that's also probably one of my top five favorite episodes. Um, and like on nine eleven, like of course, of course, my uh, mind did say that like you know we have to make sure this summer happens again. And there was some feeling of, I don't want to say vengeance, but seeking justice. You uh, could say it was vengeance. That's that's fair. It, it, but it really wasn't for me. But like I, for a lot of people though. But I knew that also around that time was going to be the UN General Assembly. So okay, I uh, now I guess I to explain the full sure. how I was feeling. I have to go through my story. So like, like Rob, I was also in Catholic school. Uh, I was my school was nursery through eighth grade and so of course you have really little kids uh, there and uh i was living in manhasset which is a suburb of new york city it's and a lot of people um uh, like would a lot of uh families like would commute it or or parents would be commuting in uh to the city um, upper middle class fam- white, uh, mostly white families and all that you know basically the demographics that would be at the major uh, financial insurance law firms all at, in the World Trade Center <coughs> um, and you so throughout the day starting like at 846 when the first plane hit I would have been in my computer class, um, you know, and then throughout the day, basically kids would just be the assistant principal or the principal would be saying, Hey, so-and-so uh, please come with me. And they'd come and you would think that like, maybe they were in trouble or something, but then they would start to leave and they say, no, you should take your backpack. And we're like, that's weird. But, you know, we didn't think too much of it. And then, but they would never come back. Like, you thought, like, maybe they were in trouble and then, you know, with the principal's office and then, you know, they'd come back. And I remember I was in science class. In some classes, the teacher would always have us begin with a prayer. And she, uh, uh, my science teacher, her name was Mrs. Kincannon. She explained, uh, like, says, let's pray for, it was something very kind of weird. It was, like, that there will be end to all of the pains and uh, of the world. It was very, it was very weirdly phrased. And, but, like, previously, a week prior, um, there were the stories out in Northern Ireland of, little girls being harassed as they were going to Catholic school because, you know, the whole Protestant Catholic uh, issue in Northern Ireland. And so she was having us pray for like that, that would end. So we thought maybe, okay, it's more of just that, but it's weirdly phrased. Um, 
So <laughs> finally it comes to launch time. This, so this is maybe about noon-ish. And we hear, I hear two of my classmates saying like one of them saw a, the only male teacher of the school crying. And this is going to sound really crazy, but you know, 12 year old and you have still, you're still at that age where you have a bit of a crazy imagination. I was thinking like for killing kids or something. And like it was something straight out like Matilda with that crazy principal. And so then I'm heading from lunch to recess. The prince and one of my classmates says, oh, uh, Dr. Czechia, who was the principal, wants you. I'm like, oh, crap, I'm next. And she says, someone's here to come see you. Like, if you don't know them, just tell me. And turns out that it's um, the one of my childhood best friends, his mother, his little sister. I'm like, oh, hi, how are you? And like, the mother says to me, your mom has something that she needs to talk to you about. I'm like, okay. It was very weird. Um, but there I was like, I was just told to go get my stuff. And I was like, okay. <laughs> the... Uh, so I did that stuff and then so I'm leaving with them and for me you know 12 years old I'm thinking like this is great I'm getting out of school early because you know who wants to be in school so my school was built on a hill and we're walking down the hill and my friend Francesco says to me he's like so you know the World Trade Center I'm like yeah it's gone it's like, you know, that's way to rip off the Band-Aid. And of course, I'm instantly reminded of a time when, like, I, my half-brother, sister-in-law, my nephews, and I went in, like, went to the observation deck a few years prior. Because, of course, your brain always goes to, like, the nicest memory you have of something. And uh, <laughs> basically, then, as we get to the car, the story comes out that, like, things are that it was like a whole terrorist attack where planes are being used as flying bombs and I'm doing this like sort of nervous laughing and of course I didn't want to look, look like I was a sociopath so I was like trying to like make it look almost like sobs but it was more of like this is too crazy I can't process this so of course you know being an adult now, I can understand, like, you know, laughing sometimes is just a normal defense mechanism. But yeah, I was very concerned about how people would perceive me. Um, but so I was brought, because there was a question about where my parents, if my parents would be home that night. But basically, so my mom was able to get in touch with my friend Francesco's mother, and the two mothers are very close friends. She's like, I need somewhere where I know Seamus can be safe basically forever. Because they, uh, my mom was um, managing attorney of her own firm at the time, and my dad was their bookkeeper. So they're both in the city. Um, <clears throat> and so I, they, I was brought over to my house to get gather some clothes and stuff. And then I went to my friend Francesco's house, and basically we were I 
brought a video game actually with me, and the game is of importance. I'll explain in a second. Um, that was, and it was uh, so basically we were just like I was there with my friend Francesco, and he was upset because his father was a doctor, mm-hmm. and he had to uh, his doctor his dad was just, just was on call. Uh, at, the, at the hospital which he was affiliated I said like they're going to need doctors right now and for a while unfortunately it was doctors basically just sitting and just twiddling their thumbs because it was pe- people that were able to be rescued at first were uh, they were okay but it was then it was then for a while it was a recovery mission of bodies um there was not as much as people would think there was for doctors and nurses but the game that i brought with me was uh called red alert 2 either of you heard of it i vaguely remember it yeah like i i couldn't tell you much about it but i mean well it caused some uh consternation and was taken off the shelves for a while because if you the premise of it is that uh Albert Einstein created a time machine, goes back in time, and has someone kill Hitler. But instead, Stalin starts World War II. The premise of the of Red Alert 2 is that after Stalin is defeated, uh, a new uh, premier is brought in with the Soviets, but they then start a war uh, against the United States and the Allies. And in the, if you play as the Soviets, the first mission is you destroy the Pentagon. Yes. That's like so, sorry, trying to show Soviet strength. And then the third mission, you're supposed to take over the World Trade Center, but you actually have in the game an option to destroy the building. Nice. <laughs> there is yeah. a lot of, like, there was a lot of art and culture, some of it more significant than others. That you know, it was really similar stuff happened that was coming out or was scheduled to release around the same time, um, and I just got somebody had just sent me a tweet thread of somebody posting all the weirdest, stupid conservative takes for like the next couple of years after nine eleven, and we can kind of get into that later on when we want to wind down. But it, it's making me think about like um, there was some rap group, and I don't remember the name. They weren't really they never really hit it big. They only got their publicity from this. But the day of the attacks, they were releasing a new album because it was on a Tuesday and Tuesdays used to be when all the new albums came out. And it depicted them like standing in front of the flaming world trade center. It was supposed to be like an anti-capitalist message, mm-hmm. but obviously that was a crazy thing. Um, Actually, the- um, Eminem's like affiliate group D12, they had a song that came out right around that time called fight music. That's right. I remember that. And that- the reason that song did not take off was because People just couldn't handle the idea of violence. Mm-hmm. There was, um, I'm, I'm thinking of like lots of things that were affected by this. Uh, the Strokes, they, you know, New York City band, they had a song because their new, their first album was coming out around then that was called New York City Cops. And it was making fun of cops. And, you know, mm-hmm. people obviously didn't want to hear about any sort of first responders, especially in New York City being talked down upon at the time and you know for obvious reasons and they had to re-release the album without that uh jimmy world had to change the name of an album because they had called it bleed american um 
the trailer for the I, Spider-Man movie, the very first Spider-Man movie was coming out. Yep. And you, I was yeah, literally you about to talk about Spider-Man. I, I honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if that scene on the Roosevelt Island tram was meant to do a lot of like pro post 11 stuff. Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah, oh, and you also like with the, one of us, you mess with all of us, all. and you all start throwing stuff at the Green Goblin. Yeah. Uh, oh. This is New York. Yeah, and also the final scene where he's slings onto the Empire City Building and he's on an American flag. Well, and it it wasn't just. I mean, that's the one that's most notable, uh, just because it was it was kind of the the biggest blockbuster at the time that that was affected. But there were a couple others. I remember. I, I think it was Mr. Deeds. They had to reshoot one because. One of the scenes showed that in the background, so they didn't reshoot it, but the uh, the World Trade Center was digitally edited. There was Stuart Little um, that was taken out. Uh, I, I can't remember where that was. I'm pretty sure it was Stuart Little or Stuart Little 2, don't quote me. Men in Black, if it was, it would have been the Statue of Liberty was, was imposed instead. There's a bunch of other ones that were, I mean, and, and it's weird watching movies like, uh, like Home Alone 2. Or Armageddon, or Armageddon, where it's, mm-hmm. it's hit by an asteroid. And I mean, it's just the parallels that you've got there are just so, so yeah. weird. So, like, what I it's no surprise to Rob or Ben, but like, I'm a huge Broadway fan. And mm-hmm. so, like, if you watch the Rent movie, there's a scene where they show panorama of New York City and you see the World Trade Center. And you listen to the director's commentary, it's Chris Columbus saying, people were asking, is this supposed to be some sort of social commentary? And he's like, no, this is supposed to take place in 1989. 1989, World Trade Center was alive and well. Like, that's it. Yeah. What else was I thinking? There was, um, you know, in the 1970s, there was a there was a remake uh, of, of King Kong had Jeff Bridges in it. Um, but instead of the Empire State Building, there, you know sort of asinine way of making it distinct from the original was he climbs up the the, uh, the World Trade Center instead of the Empire State Building because there's this whole flashback scene where it looks like these two spires on his island. And sometime like later that year or early the next year, I think Saturday Night Live did a whole sketch just making a joke about that where it's, you know, being broadcast on just a, you know, cable network and it really awkwardly like you can tell somebody's lips are still moving but then just one of the comedians on the show their voice comes in when they say you have to let him climb up the world trade center and then the audio drops out and says you have to let him climb up the world chrysler building and just so many little things like that um i mean it's this is one of the stranger cultural responses that we had to have but it's sort of hard to you know fathom just the massive loss of such a you know kind of a mundane you know at the time was kind of a mundane landmark it was just a standard part of the new york skyline which is this whole iconic thing like i can't go ahead bro and he mentioned saturday night live and i I think that was another turning point because i mean snl has this historic career right lauren michaels is is a freaking genius for being able to keep it going this long and the way it is and they still find ways to be relevant and funny but i mean they even took a break and and either it was either started the season late or they took a break obviously after 9 11 with the season starting and it was it was a couple weeks after and everybody's like lauren michaels took a lot of shit for having an episode so soon after, but looking back and, and, it, and it goes back to kind of Ben's point that you made earlier, where, you know, we analyze things in the moment and then things get put through the prism of time, which then mm-hmm. changes how everything goes. 
and and still to this day, people regard that as a, um, you know, as one of the beginning points again of getting back to normalcy. They did the honoring with you know all the FDNY and NYPD people that were there. I think the mayor was there. They had some other people that were there, but they did an episode of SNL, and people at the time and Seamus, you know, dovetailing back to what you said, they had this way of making it so you had something that was there because realistically, like you had pointed out, all the content on most channels was all about 9-11. You were seeing the replay of the, the buildings getting hit, the buildings coming down, the Pentagon, Pennsylvania and all that. And this was an hour and a half late night and it was re-aired Sunday morning or uh, yeah, Sunday or Sunday morning or afternoon or something where they were just having a break. Like, and yeah, that 9-11 episode, I remember, because I was always a huge SNL fan. I still am. Like, I watched every episode. <coughs> um, I remember watching it, and it was a little catharsis. Like, we were able to help, because it's a very New York-centric show. Like, a lot of the jokes, I no offense, Ben, but I don't know how y'all get it in Topeka. I mean, New York sort of doesn't really give you a choice but to know what's going on in New York. So there's obviously stuff that'll fly over our heads. Mm-hmm. But, you know, so much yeah. media is centered in New York that we just, we're going to pick up on most of it. Yeah. This but is- like it was, but it was able, at least for, I can't, for New Yorkers, I can't speak for anyone else in the United States, but it was sort of like a, a way to be able to just like laugh again. Uh, and they made it was jokes that were that were tasteful like did, did not make us feel like crazy like you know you had the uh sketch where at the near end where it's will farrell wearing a bikini bottom and it's all about his bulge <laughs> and yeah. it's because the whole thing is the american flag <laughs> and it's uh Actually, no, that was that was a separate episode because it was Sean William Scott was the guest. But I think it was the first episode back was... That's how you know uh, how this was. Sean William Scott was involved. Yes. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon was the, was yeah. the guest host, it, yes. if I remember. It was. It was Reese Witherspoon because it was Legally Blonde had been like a big thing that year. That's right. But I think Sean William Scott was like one of the later guests that season. And Sum 41 was the musical guest, I remember. Yeah. Don't ask, don't ask Newt. Great song. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, that was, but it was like a lot of stuff that we were able to do that. And, but, you know, Rudriani, which like on September 10th, New Yorkers were just about done with him. And of course he did, he did show uh, leadership and stuff on 9-11 in the days following. I will give him that. But you know, when he came on there and Lord Michaels asks, can we be funny? And he says, why start now? Like it was, it was a good moment. Was it that, that moment was it. Mm -hmm. It was a reminder. Like we have to get back to how things were there. This is making me think of a couple of things like that are in the same vein, just like kind of getting back to humor and trying to use that to cope. One of, the first shows that I remember, you know, that wasn't just the news or, you know, jokes that it was fake news when it was first starting out was, was the daily show. And this is kind of early. So I think John. Actually, I think. Uh, it wasn't 98. Uh, Cause he was making stuff about uh, this Lewinsky. I remember. 
I mean, everyone was. And that that provided fodder for way too long. But no, I, I think maybe it was I think it was 99 or 2000 because he was there for the election for the Bush election. Mm-hmm. But his coverage of it, I mean, they waited a few days before they started The Daily Show again. And I remember watching that, just being happy to have something to, you know, smile at a little bit. But I mean, it was obvious that he was having a hard time. Just, you know, he's a New Yorker on national television right then. And he revealed at the very end of the episode that he had brought a puppy with him um, to the studio and had been keeping it under his desk the entire taping of the episode to just pet whenever he got too anxious. And he brought it out to show the camera at the end. Um, and I remember this again, because when uh, when he announced that he was retiring from The Daily Show, you know, before Trevor Noah took over, the week or so leading up to his last episode, Comedy Central literally re-aired every episode of The Daily Show from his entire run, which, you know, is mm-hmm. 17 years of, of TV. And I actually managed to catch that again. Um, and... It's one of those rare things where it just it's hard to recreate a mood like that. But it was clearly just so important, even though he was struggling so hard. Because I mean, this is before he had established himself as as significant a cultural force as you know he and the Daily Show really started to over the next couple of years. The other thing wasn't on national TV, even if it you know involved someone very famous. But that October. Um, George Carlin was on a stand-up tour, and he came to Topeka. Uh, we hardly ever get famous musicians, but all the comedians come to Topeka. And he was playing at our Performing Arts Center. And, you know, it's George Carlin, so he's not the type who's ever going to hold anything back. And I think there's some both eagerness to laugh at whatever crazy shit he's willing to say, but at the same time, what's it going to come up? What's it going to feel like? And he waits and just springs a 9-11 joke near the very end where he starts talking about flying and how miserable it is being stuck in a plane with lots of people. And it just builds and builds to, and you're stuck in you know the middle seat between these two people with the worst body odor you've ever smelled. And the, the joke keeps escalating to the point where the, you know, what sounds like it's a story of recounting being between people who didn't bathe became and their smell gets so bad that it overtakes the entire cabin you know it causes the pilots to pass out and crash the plane and then they blame it on osama bin laden and you know he just says that in his gleeful george carlin growl and it was i don't know if it was objectively the funniest thing that night but it got the best response because it was just everyone waiting for some way to put that in context, you know, a month and a half after the attacks happened in a way that could be funny and not just traumatizing. And it's George Carlin. So of course he could go for it and he could do it in a way that actually made sense to people and actually made them laugh. And I'm probably doing a terrible job of setting up what a moment it was, but I mean, it it was remarkable. But like, also, like there, there was the South Park episode where they take on Bin Laden, and like that was a bit of catharsis because they did it all as some sort of Looney Tunes sketch, mm-hmm. and it was. But it was basically we all had a common enemy, and we all had to find a way to just take him on and like make sense of it. Because mm-hmm. of course, we knew within a month that because we found the tapes that he said, like he was bragging about it. Oh, yeah. find it. 
and, and, and it's kind of ironic you mentioned John Stewart and, and I, I've, I've made some notes of just things that I want to run through at some point yeah. I added John Stewart to one of them just because you know he he retired from the daily show and everybody's like, why? Because the daily show was massively popular. He was doing a great job. I mean, he dedicated his, the, the, his post daily show life to helping out the responders that he mm-hmm. champions. And it, it amazes me that it, it doesn't amaze me because that's just type of guy he is. And I, I miss him on the daily show. And I have the, in Hollywood, which I have a, a rough relationship with sometimes, John Stewart is one of those people I automatically, ultimately respect just because of the way he's done to sit in the halls of Congress and rail accurately. And, you know, mm-hmm. to some degree, his, his, his weaponizing of the dictionary in the English language to prove his point and, and just the veracity in which he went at it is amazing to me. And it's something that, you know, we desperately need. Um, so, it, you know, 9-11 for him was that moment and, and he was really the champion. And also in, in Hollywood, and this is one of the other people that's on my list of things to talk about today is the unsung story of Steve Buscemi. Um, you know, it has kind of made its way around, but it's still not even in that, that, that front sphere. He refuses to talk about it. It was the time when they were, you know, they were getting for and all the things that he was doing with, uh, I, I think the Sopranos was on at that point, or maybe he was involved in that because that he was, was, he was on the Sopranos. Yeah, he was, but it was, it was before Boardwalk Empire was there. And, you know, he, he took off, like he disappeared from Hollywood. He went down because he was a fireman at one point. He rejoined his ladder crew for however long that he, you know, joined for rec- uh, rescue and recovery. Mm-hmm. And, and people still to this day ask him and he won't give a quote. And, yeah. and you know, kudos There's only to one him. photograph of it. And it's like, you wouldn't know it was him if yep. not for the fact that enough people have verified it. And that's just another, there's tons of stories about all those unsung heroes and even the the people in FDNY and NYPD and all the recovery that we don't know that lost their life um, because of it, especially the cancers that have happened afterwards. And, but those are just two stories that really stick in my mind. Like, Um, like we, uh, I remember during, it was actually my very first YDA convention. It was 2011 uh, in Louisville. I was watching the previous night's, like my first day there, I was watching the previous night's uh, Daily Show, and it was when John Stewart's first starting to really go at um, the like guidelines that were given for the Sudroga Act, and like how they didn't include cancer. And he says, "Here's the absolute worst case scenario," and he came up like that of every ease like <laughs> that they are using that some first responder is using every known carcinogen possible, like, and drinking, like, Agent or or, uh, a glass of Agent Orange juice. <laughs> yeah, it was... Wow. Yeah, it was... I, I can't give the, uh, the bit credit, or enough homage, but he says, like, even they still deserve this off. And I remember everything that he did just leading up to uh, the end of that term, you know, into 2010 was phenomenal. And it was, if y'all remember with uh, this Droga Act, it was passed just before the end of session for Congress. <coughs> and I guess I, I want to say it was maybe like the 23rd or 22nd or something. And of course, con- uh, President has 10 days to sign. And so it's Christmas Eve, and 
uh, the White House uh, new media director, Bacon Phillips, who I was following on Twitter, says, oh, uh, the press secretary, uh, Robert Gibbs, is going to be doing a Twitter town hall uh, in a few minutes. Like, send him your questions. And my question that I sent was, when is the president going to sign the Zadroga Act? And the issue was about, because the president, President Obama at the time, was going to Hawaii for his annual family vacation. And so it was, how are they going to get it to him? By this point, he already started the president, uh, president no pun intended, of uh, using an auto pen to sign. I'm not sure how or where he signed, but it was signed into law. But basically... I, but I asked the question, to, and it was answered, and you can find it. And there were stories about it of, like, when's the president going to sign this drug act? Because he only had a week to do it before the new session. And, and for New Yorkers, that was a very personal thing. I remember saying to the chief of staff of my city councilman, like, one time, like, it was, and this is something I will still, I will say to this day. If it was up to me, every first responder that was on the pile, like they should be able to retire all expenses at Club Med, all expenses paid for the rest of their lives on taxpayer dollars. And any fiscal conservative that wants to go at me on that, bring it on. Like I will go toe to toe on you on that. Like they did what they did to save people that they did not know on that day. They deserve it. And even if, and and I don't disagree with that sentiment at all, but even if Mm -hmm. we don't go that far, the fact that they have to, that they had to do so much and it took such an effort to lift to get just basic health care provided for them after what Mm -hmm. they did on the pile, um, anybody that went down, because I I think all 50 states likely sent somebody in, at least one person, you know, the help Mm -hmm. of the recovery efforts and, and all of the side effects that happened afterwards in terms of being at the site or down there. Anybody who was there that helped in recovery should, you know, if they get 9-11 sickness of anything from the toxins that were there, you know, there, there should be no questions asked. And yeah. I, I agree with that. Point. Yeah. And the thing that's crazy is, so there are a lot of people that, of course, are now starting to feel symptoms 20 years later from 9-11 based illnesses. And it's going to be a little crazy for me to say, but I'm all, I, I have a this looming fear that I may be one of them. And I'll explain how. Well, finish like my story from earlier. Like, of course, my parents do eventually are able to get home. You know, we do reunite and all that. And I remember, but like with the part of me, like, I remember at one point I was turned on the news and I just went into like our guest bedroom and I was like light on, light on bed. I'm like, this is not happening. You know, I end up just like out of stress taking a nap for about 20 minutes or something. And I went and wake up I'm like, no, this is real. But um about two days later i'm in health class and i started smelling like something burning like it was like almost like a fireplace or a uh and i turned to one of my friends i say hey jack like what's the what's that smell he's like it's from the twin towers i'm like can't be and he's then like later our principal goes on the pa and says any of you that's smelling like uh, something burning that is the winds have shifted and it's going coming from Twin Towers. And we're about 20, 25 miles away as the crow flies from the World Trade Center. So it was crazy that that was happening. But the fact that for maybe 
a few hours, I was inhaling what could have been carcinogenic toxins. I honestly, I pray that I don't end up with something, but it's quite possible. It most likely is not going to happen, but it's, you know, because the first, at first we were all told we'll be okay, you know, and of course that turned up being untrue, you know, say what you want about Christine Todd Whitman, that's been litigated enough times, but, you know, I just don't know, but we'll see. That's, that's absolutely true, especially, you know, in the, in the people that were there, you know, afterwards and not on the pile, but those kind of like stories, I'm sure you're your story is well unique to you, not unique to many of the people that live in the major metro in those days, just of the the recovery that it was to get the pile cleaned up. Yeah, it was and the thing is that people don't realize that like there was fires burning until December. Mm -hmm. Um like I remember I was going to some thing with my parents and we were driving in from uh, Long Island to the city to go visit my aunts and we had the news on the radio. They said, you know, it's mid-December, around Christmas time almost, and they said, oh, the uh, fires have fi finally been put out. Uh, but in, but yeah, Rob, to your point, like everyone has their own little story about where they were, what they were doing, and like, for me, you know, there was a lot of, like, I don't have as many stories because I was not in New York City that day, but of course, like, you know, my parents were, and but it's not my story to tell with them, but my dad got home sooner than my mom did, but my mom, like, she, this part, I, I guess I can say, like, she was on the train going underneath the towers uh, because she had to go to court um and like as the second plane hit like based on the time she figured out like so she has some she for a while had some great survivor's guilt but you know um but there was a lot of those like camaraderie like people giving each other water that they had you know it was more of like we're all in this together we have to like we're gonna get through this together uh that was truly like the miracle of that day and, and, and just because I want to pivot back to that, but at least for me, because that's, that's, I think, where I, I personally want to end at least my discussion. But two other things that I had on here was the concert for New York. Um, that was kind of like the AIDS conference for the AIDS concert, excuse me, for this uh, generation. And I, I was a Five for Fighting fan. He had already released a couple albums in the late 90s, but uh, and I could never say his name right. John O. Jurassic, or if, if that's right, I'm going to be shocked at myself. But he's uh, the lead singer for Five for Fighting. Um, and he got pulled into the concert for New York and he did Superman, It's Not Easy. And I very quickly remember that becoming the anthem. And it was, he was a late addition because somebody scratched. He was in, he was in London or Spain, I forget at the time of 9-11. He came over and uh, years since he says that was one of his like pivotal moments as an entertainer. Um, and, and I've been a huge fan of Five for Fighting. I've got all their CD albums. I'm now trying to get all the record albums because I have a record player and that's amazing. And that was just one thing I remember. I remember watching that whole concert and that was a moment after the, the horrors and atrocities we saw, that was a moment. Um, the other one I want to do is on the, on the, talking about the stories that actually happened in 9-11, uh, the whole beginning after and during fascinating. 
just because that was, you know, my JFK moment. Um, and it's called Boat Lift. And I posted it on my Facebook the other day. Um, I'll share it so that you guys can see. Vice News did a, a recap of it from a different angle this year um, with their Where I Was series that they're doing on Vice. But CNN for the 10th anniversary, so a decade ago today, um, they did a thing called Boat Lift and it was narrated by Tom Hanks. And it talked about something interesting that, you know, as an upstate, you never think of it. Downstate, they didn't either on the day. Manhattan's an island. When 9-11 happened, it was shut down. You couldn't take the tunnels. You, you couldn't get off with the bridges. They shut it down. The only way in or, not, in or off uh, the island was boat. And uh, you need to watch it. They've got some great footage. The Vice News interviewed the guy who was the, the uh, chair of the Port Authority. I'm sorry, the commissioner of the Port Authority, I believe it was, or something like that for the day. Um, and they talk about the stories of what happened on the water. And what happened specifically after the Coast Guard put out the all call on regular VHF frequency saying anybody who's got a boat report to Governor's Island. And, and here's the stat that truly blows my mind and all the history that was made on that day. The evacuation of Dunkirk took eight days and they rescued 310,000 British and French troops. The boat lift of 9-11 evacuated around or over 500,000 people and it took nine hours. And, and that blows my mind. And I'll send it to both of you. It'll take 20 minutes to watch both the videos. But I'll add that to the show notes. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. And some of the coverage that they get, and some of the captains that they talk to of the, the ferries and stuff like that, really, really, it, it, it's a real unsung story of what happened. The, and, and, and so, yeah. But And then the one point I want to end with is, you know, it, let, let's put it on the shelf. 9-11 was a horrible day. Um, and, and, and we wish not to repeat that. And we don't wish that upon anybody to any real degree. 9-12, the, the feeling that we had as a country, especially echoing back and kind of full circling this whole conversation is we saw what happened, you know, over the last couple of years, COVID, uh, you know, a, a very contentious election cycle, um, which uh, everybody in the United States had opinion on. 9-12, we were united. Mm -hmm. you know, we, were, we were all one country. We were all, you know, making sure our neighbors were there, caring for people. And part of me wonders, as, as, as an American, what it takes to get back there if we actually need a 9-11 type event to get there, or if that is a thing of the past, I know President Bush talked about it today and he put out uh, you know, news stories about the, the feeling that we had as Americans. And part of me wonders, especially with the political divide in this country, if we ever get back to that ability where we can care for our neighbors, or if, and I, and I say this more tongue in cheek, but if we should really just divide America and have you know, red states and blue states and you go there because of where we're trending. And, and, but the feeling after 9-11 very much was, you're my brother, you're my sister, you're my friend, you're a fellow countryman, and we're all here to take care of you. Um, and that's something I do miss. I don't miss the, the horrors that I saw, but that feeling of I'm scared shitless, we need to do something here and then have the ability to say, yes, but you know what? I'm comforted by my community and the people around me is something I think we sorely need in 2021. You know, and, I, I hate to say it, but I mean, I think the reason we don't get that again, it really is because there hasn't been something that is just so viscerally shocking on that level. 
Um, because that's the sort of thing where it's kind of obvious that a response to is going to be universal. Uh, you know, it's there, it's fast, it's understandable because I mean, you're talking about a disaster like you'd see in a movie. Um, you know, something and, like what we're going through now with, with the coronavirus, it's there. And I mean, the scale is honestly wider. The death toll is significantly higher, but it's something that people can hide and push under the rug. And so many people try to, uh, or, you know, when Hurricane Katrina happened, because again, a very comparable level of destruction, but it was treated as localized because, I don't know, New Orleans doesn't have the national attention the same way that New York is sort of, we don't have a choice but to have it. It was race on, with Katrina, let's face it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like why that's Kanye, right. Kanye, for all of the things you can say about Kanye, he got that one right. Was that was right. his broken record moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, they're, the reaction to that was so different to anything else because what it was was so almost, I, I mean, this is probably not the right word, but I, I'm not thinking of a better one right now, but it was so digestible to people uh, in a way that everyone was going to take in the same way. And, you know, the other thing is that media was not what it is now. We yeah, and to bring it back like full circle to what I was saying, mm-hmm. like Ben, you, like I was trying to get in to say that, like we did not have social media then. And also we were all watching the same exact coverage. Yep. Like <laughs> it was basically every, every news channel had the same view on, like they were all using the same feed of the towers, like when they were covering it and we all saw the second plane hit, like it was all the same feed. So there was your eyes could not deceive you there. But then also we did not give a platform to any sort of like fringe conspiracy theorists or uh, on any side of the angle, us left or right. We didn't let the people that came in and said, no, this was a government set up, jet fuel can't uh, melt steel beams. We didn't treat them like their opinions were valid just because they're people who have them. And we need to base policy and news coverage around not upsetting them the way that, you know, people are. Yeah, like they didn't have a platform because they now have that with Twitter, with Facebook, Instagram, every uh, TikTok, you know, and of course, the three of us, like we all use these platforms. So we are guilty of perpetuating it. But like, honestly, if I heard tomorrow that Facebook and Twitter were shut, being shut down, I honestly would throw a party because it is I think that those are two of the things that are dividing this nation uh, because we are at the point where now anyone can just create an account with some sort of fake email account and say whatever the heck they want just to cause chaos. And Not as Michael Caine, as Michael Caine said in uh the dark night right or in the dark night yeah. some people like to watch the world watch burn, burn. yeah <laughs> and, and but we're, we're at the point where we don't have <laughs> the same facts so therefore we also then can give these conspiracy theorists a platform wherein they can spread disinformation to other people so that will be what divides us well senator monahan was entirely right when he said the quote from what was the 40s or the 50s that everybody's mm-hmm. entitled to their own opinion but not their own facts mm-hmm. and I, I i probably you know paraphrase that but accurately and, and i think you know looking at you know the the, the chain reaction of 9 11 and i'm going to be you know looking at it from a macro scale 9 11 happens recovery happens and then the the pentagon goes into mobilization of how are we going to get back at them and you know 
bin Laden is 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 appointed as the person, and we move towards the military campaign that we we've seen. Looking at it, and Seamus, your point is, and Ben, your, your you said basically there's no platform for it. And Seamus, you went on what you just said. the The issue was though is like when the people that were dissenting the war, and there weren't many of them, but what they they didn't get the coverage because there was no ability to. Some of them would make the news, but the clip was, and this person said it's a bad idea. Oh, and over to you and weather, and then sports. Mm -hmm. yeah, like that's direct. what. It, Right. And they were there are very few people that survived that era who were anti going into Afghanistan and Iraq um, for the war on terror. Uh, they just didn't survive because of the political pushback that they got. And I think I, I wonder so much. And I guess it's in a vacuum, kind of like a create a computer simulation kind of thing to run it through. What would happen today if the exact same thing happened? But it happened today. I mean, in a, way, in a way, we've seen that. I mean, again, like the coronavirus plays out differently, but even and I know, I know, I know, Seamus said the capital riots were like that, but the the, the feeling that I, I don't think really it's it's comparable in terms of scale. Feeling kind of it's along the same vein. I mean, the the picture is ingrained in my mind with the Capitol police officers inside mm -hmm. the in the halls with the guns pointed at the door, people trying to charge. Yes. But in terms of that moment, I don't I don't know if we've had anything. And, and I wonder what I really do wonder what would happen if the exact same 9-11. You're right in the terms of the loss of life over coronavirus. But in terms of it all happening in that moment and it being that level, of, you know, right. It, it was like it was like job. a number three pain for a month versus a 10 pain for a day. I. Certainly and gives us a lot to think about. Yeah, and I mean, I've I think we're we're hardly the first people to have this conversation, but right. I, I think there's sort of an entitlement to perspective that some people have. That I mean, obviously there was a need for people to handle dissent better in the aftermath of 9/11, especially as a move to military response. Um, sure would have saved us a lot of trouble, but there is much more of a fixation on the takes on an event now and do people really believe that it happened or that it matters and they are treated with such a different degree sometimes a harmful degree of importance um that you know is, is a point where it's probably beating into the ground a little bit but i'm really afraid that there would be way too much of a fixation on that um i mean just like there really has been i mean i, I you know again you're talking about a higher level of pain over a shorter period of time um versus a lower level over a longer one even if they add that's, up to in prefacing that's a really insensitive way to describe it because there's no real there's no real way unless you were there that you can understand sure. you know the, the gen zers as Seamus pointed out are mm -hmm. going to try to li litigate that from the perspective now but um, unless you were really there i guess and, and i don't know if it's the, the, the term privilege, not it's not a privilege to be there, but in terms of privilege of having that perspective, um, you, you I mean, don't really know unless you were there or you were involved in that time to really fear what, feel what the air was of that day. I mean, it's context. It's an important part sure. of the context. And the mindset of it is one that is so, for so many reasons that we've touched on, so right. impossible to recreate right now that it's really hard to have that conversation from people that, you know, we're 
children or hadn't been born yet when it happened. Right. Um, and that's, I think, where some of the, I mean, and granted, like, we've also got years of our own perspective of how things, especially the military campaign, you know, was blundered in the Middle East afterwards that we can talk about. But, I mean, there were reasons why going into Afghanistan in the first place had so little dissent uh, when we first happened. I mean, so many people that are, you know, very much on the left and were very frustrated by it and, you know, wish we'd gotten out of it years and years before we did, were still fully in support of going in and trying to unroot bin Laden and Al-Qaeda and knock out the Taliban for aiding and abetting them at the time. I mean, there was just so little pushback against that, that you didn't really, the, un, the importance of scrutinizing what the military was doing and what the Bush administration was doing about that. I, I don't know, it didn't really become prevalent and people didn't really start talking openly about the importance of it for a couple of years, really not until you know they really started pushing to shift focus over to Iraq. And thing is also, we definitely overcorrected when it came to our response. Like, you know, of course we did like within like, what was it, two days later that we did the AUMF on it, mm -hmm. uh, authorized use of military force. Uh, within like a month, we uh, passed the Patriot Act, which we, there was a little bit of dissent you would hear on the news, like how they get like searched into your library records and all that. But of course, nowadays, like you have to take off your shoes to go through TSA and, uh, you know, you can't bring a bottle of water with you through security. And, of course, you watch anyone who's a fan of Adam Ruins, everything knows that, like, actually a lot of that stuff is literally just to make people feel better. Oh, yeah. Because one <laughs> and, time a guy tried to smuggle a bomb in his shoe onto a flight and, you know, didn't succeed in detonating it. I don't, I don't even know if... I remember, I, I remember yeah. in college, I took a course on constitutional law. The professor said at that point, I think it rings true today as it did then, as it mm -hmm. did at the beginning of the, our country and the foundation with the Constitution being written. Our country is not built to be proactive. The Constitution is not a proactive document. It, mm -hmm. It's a reactive document to things going on in the world at the time. And the ability for us to be created as a nation and respond are reactive. So there is no proactivity that's there, you know, and, and I'll give props where props is due. And I'm sure there are multiple people in the world that are going to disagree with me on this, especially here in our own country and in our own party for that matter. But the idea that President Bush and Tom Ridge, governor of Pennsylvania at that time, to have the idea of homeland security, the department of, while it, it was mired and it's got a, a checkered history of what they've done, the idea there was a proactive thing to come out of, you know, well, it was reactive because of 9-11, but it was proactive forward thinking because one of the things we've now learned afterwards is the intelligence communities don't talk to each other because it's like mm -hmm. my turf, my hill. Mm -hmm. um, and you, you can say what you want about homeland security, but the idea of having that as somewhat of a department to filter things through is somewhat a good thing some days. Um, oh, well, like I will advise everyone that listens to this, you know, all, a dozen of you to listen to the latest episode of Stay Tuned with Preet, because the guest was Jay Johnson, and the roughly near end, he makes this exact argument wherein uh, a lot of countries had their own version of like what would be like a home office, right. uh, which is basically Homeland Security, um, you know, DNI and all that, like, you know, when it's working properly, uh, that person is 
really get, getting all the intelligence and putting it and summarizing it into one like single document and database and all that for uh, the president, the Congress, not other intelligence agencies, all to use and digest. And you, uh, so we definitely did react and but became proactive about it. And yes, there are. Well, are there issues with this stuff? Yes. Sure. Like, and, and uh, mm-hmm. I think that no one's in just denial about that. Like, and I will be, if you ask me about like a lot of the reactions that happened, like that's time for, that's for another podcast. But like in, for me on some things, I will say like, yes, we definitely need homeless security, but I think that honestly we should go back to pre 9-11 airport security and people think I'm crazy. And then I tell them. I was for years a false positive on the no-fly list. Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> and, yeah, no, but I, my, my brother was because yeah. there was somebody else <laughs> with his name uh, that had pinged for, I guess, some more legitimate reason. I don't know the difference, but it would be, there, were, there was a period for years mm-hmm. where he would get pulled out for additional screening because of that and because, I don't know, just the, the slightest hint of Mediterranean in our heritage shows up for him more, so he normally he can tan a little bit more than I do. And at the right time of year, we'll look more stereotypically what, you know, the Bush administration would consider Middle Eastern and therefore suspect, uh, which God, there's just like this whole can of worms about the racism against people that were even perceived to be Muslim that I feel like we've had this whole conversation and we somehow have had a really robust talk without even getting to that. And God, we could probably go on about that for hours and hours because that's been horrifying. And we all know people that have been definitely racially profiled as a result of 9-11. And you know, one of the things that I think goes unsaid is, and it's been said by multiple people in multiple administrations, so this isn't really a a partisan comment, it's just factual. Post 9-11, you know, the Muslim community was hit very hard because of the effect of what the extremists did on that day. And everybody, because we have to be so label makers and generalizing, it's all Muslims bad. And we've now come to see the error in that, you know, just as we saw the, you know, the parallel of the history, true, yeah. with, with, with some people, I should say, it's not true for all. Yeah, um, that's, that's people, sadly not universal. Like, right. There really we saw, is, we saw there's the no, there, there's really no light between Osama bin Laden and the uh, uh, 1996 Olympic bomber. Like, they're both religious extremists. It does. Right. And, 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 you know, it kind of draws the parallel in yeah. our reaction as a country, which, you know, yeah. if you don't understand it, you're failed, you're doomed to repeat it. Mm-hmm. We saw the same thing happen in World War II with Japanese Americans. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, but anyway, the thing was, is that after 9-11, while we're, you know, Homeland Security is getting there and they're trying to create a network and a database, a lot of people that were in and around the Muslim community were the people that were feeding our intelligence apparatus, the tips on who these people were becoming homegrown here. And I think that goes unsaid because it doesn't fit that narrative of, you know, all Muslims are bad because that wasn't true. But you had people that were religious leaders here in the United States of that religion and around that community of people. And they're the ones that are are protecting themselves by helping us out in terms of data collection and intelligence. And I think that's something that goes unsaid that needs to be because it, it, it disrupts the narrative of that. And, and that's something that needs to be sped, especially on today, like today, that you know, the way they were treated post is, is something that we oh, it was abominable. Um, and yeah, basically it's, yeah, like everyday, like 
Muslims, Christians, Jews, whatever, they see the extremists, they see like what they're trying to feed, and they also realize that like, this is going to be harming them in the long term. So of course they're going to be the ones who are saying, like, well, like they're going to tell the uh, law enforcement and the intelligence agencies, these are the people to look out for. And because, and honestly, it's the, it's protecting themselves in the long term. And uh, like people don't uh, forget that it was a Middle Eastern, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, a, a food vendor at Times Square that got rid of the Times Square bo- that reported the Times Square bomber to a mounted police officer. Uh, you know, because, you know, it's someone that was basically hiding in plain sight that also knew what to look out for and saw something suspicious. Like, have we become more vigilant? Yes. But, you know, and, you know, I honestly, I can tell you, like, in New York City, there is always signs that say, if you see something, say something. Every time I've always, like, reported something that I saw that was, like, suspicious, it's always actually been against a white person. Yeah. Uh, I will be honest. It's... And, I'll tell you, being a Jew in the Midwest, uh, the people that I'm, the extremists I'm scared of are definitely more of, let me just gently say the Jerry Falwell set than, I don't know, they are anyone that we were supposed to be scared of after 9-11. I just, I'm having a lot of memories now of like, you remember one of the first like big hate crimes that was committed by, you know, white wannabe vigilantes after 9-11 was literally, it was somewhere in the Southwest, I think, a bunch of people saw a Sikh man, not even a Muslim, but a Sikh man wearing a turban and thought there's a dark skinned man wearing a turban, which we associate with this part of the world. And they beat him to death for it. Um, Well, like for me, like a lot of directions we could go with this. Yeah. Like for me, I would see like people like smoking in subway tunnels, like, or subway stations. And for a while, it was not so much that they were smoking. It's more of just like the way they were like, hiding holding the lighters and stuff that mm-hmm. seemed a little off because my mom's a smoker you know so i know these things that that i would report that because this and you know usually it probably would i'm zero doubt it mounted nothing you know uh they're probably just having a bad day but it was the vigilance that we have but yeah. you know it definitely is we've definitely had a lot of like food for thought about like the overcorrecting that we've had you know the like racism that we've had to that we've seen uh with like friends and loved ones of ours you know uh certainly the war just ending a few weeks ago you know and being being done by the you know the, the deadline that pulled out and that's a whole other topic of discussion for how we got out and, and that whole thing that better people are going to try to than myself but uh Seeing the the major general, I think it was, who walked on the airplane as the last person out was, you know, kind of reminiscent of this this day, you know, because that's, you know, it's its continuation. But I, I think, you know, we have to recenter on the point of 20 years ago today, our country got attacked and we lost 3000 people in all veins of life doing all different things, some running into rescue and some just showing up to work and anything and everything in between. And it really worries me as, and granted, I'm only 31 years old, but there are people that are now getting involved in the process, whether it be political or cultural or societal, that were not born during that time that are trying to relitigate that point 
And there are lessons that we need to learn. There are good things that we did good. There are bad things that we did bad. And there's a myriad of things on a spectrum in between. But I think we need to always remember the, you know, the, the impact that day had on our country. Um, and also remember those stories, all of them, the thousands that were lost, and then the thousands of people that stepped up on that day. And they all need to be remembered because I think as time goes on, you know, we're seeing more and more first responders that have passed. Um, and I think at some point as a country, we're forgetting some of the things that were on that day. And, and that's one of the reasons I was happy to join you guys today, because I, I think that's critically important to the conversation and, and to the history. I think that's probably a good uh, stopping point for us, you know. You know, uh, we, Ben, you want to just say, like, there are a million things that we could talk about because, I mean, this is like one of the biggest historical cultural flashpoints that we've experienced in our lifetime. And, you know, we've dedicated a bit over an hour at this point. I haven't really been measuring since we kind of had to start and stop in the recording. Um, to talking about it and we've objectively only scratched the surface of all oh, yeah. the you could possibly say about that and that's all while trying to show the restraint from what Seamus and I's normal style of podcasting is which is to just you know see who can get in as many bad jokes in over the other in you know a certain amount of time uh we, we kind of agreed early on that we shouldn't do that for this one um i'll have i'll have to come back when you guys do that because i'd love to join in for the the ticker marks of that one normally we are not serious people and uh it worries me when people take us seriously uh but we, we felt like there needed to be some sort of reflection for this um and needed to handle it. I, I know when Seamus kind of brought up the idea that I was a little bit worried, like we are usually smart asses. Let's, if, if we're going to do that, we've got to be really careful to not delve into that quite so much. And honestly, and if any listeners that like think that we did something like inappropriate, please let just like message us, you know, don't be mean, but like let's let us know because Ben and I, and I'm sure this is the same for Rob, like we do want to also like uh, course correct whenever we screw up. Um, you know, and, you know, we don't, we honestly did not want anything in bad taste. You know, it was us giving our own perspectives on, uh, this tragedy that hit us and, you know, how our nation felt with this, but we honestly do our, people are trying to go one day at a time with trying to like do better with ourselves. But, you know, I just want to say like one thing, like, you know, with, there was a lot of heroes when we saw on 9-11, um, and if you want to like honor the memory of something like dear listener, just like just do something nice for someone else that you've never met before. No, nothing in response. Like uh, someone's having a bad day. You see like they're crying just to be like, are you OK? You know, uh, you know, someone asking like homeless, like, you know, needs some water, like give them an empty bottle yeah, or give them a bottle that you have unopened, you know, something like that, you know, just Simple acts of kindness. That is honestly the best way to honor the memory of all those that we've lost. And and if somebody is bored, tell them to subscribe to our podcast. There it is. You must be really bored there. There it is, right there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so uh, our theme music is produced by Alexander Nakamura. Uh, we'd like to thank Rob Drum for coming on the pod. I've been Seamus Campbell. I've been Ben Cohen. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe.